Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to our Parsha Perspectives for today. This week, we get the, the privilege of studying Parsha's Vaera together, the continuation of this amazing narrative, this tremendous story, the birth of the Jewish people, the birth of our nation, and how we were forged, how we were formed by coming out of Mitzrayim with uh, strength, by coming out of Mitzrayim with miracles. I want to thank our generous sponsors, our Parsha series for the year. Dear friends, Becky and Avi Katz and family in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, David Ben Menachem Manish. Also, this morning's particular class is sponsored by friends Cindy and Avi Schreier and family. The Yurtzeit today of Dov Ber Ben Aaron Halevi and the upcoming Yurtzeit of Gittel Mindel Bas Avraham, Bernard and Maxine Sullivan and in memory of Uncle Lester, Eliezer Tzvi Ben Avram. Thank you for your generosity, your sponsorship. The Neshama should have an Aliyah. Just one housekeeping note, next week, Amir Tzashem, You'll only be able to uh, tune in on YouTube or Facebook. We will not be on Zoom. So for those who are joining us this morning live on Zoom, please note that next week for the Parsha class, you'll need to tune in on YouTube or on Facebook. Okay, with that, let's get started. Parsha's Vaira is in the Art Scroll Stone, Chumash, page 318. God speaks to Moshe and he says to him, Ani Hashem, I am the Lord your God, as if they have not yet met until now, as if this is the first time they're going to be speaking. Hashem, Hashem reintroduces himself, Ani Hashem. And he tells them, I have appeared to your forefathers before, but I didn't tell them my name. They knew me in some ways, but in others, I remained concealed. And of course, Rashi is bothered here. We're not going to get into it. We've spoken about it in years past. If you enjoy the Parsha Shiurim, we have many, many online from years past, and we've discussed uh, many of the things we allude to earlier. But uh, Avram al Yitzchak Yaakov, most notably a question on Rashi is, when Rashi says, Va'era el ha'avos, what is he adding el ha'avos? The Torah itself tells us, Va'era, that I appeared previously to Avram, Yitzchak, and to Yaakov. What is Rashi adding that we don't know from the text itself? We're not getting into. As I said, we've spoken about it previously. I've heard the cries of the Jewish people. And because I heard their cries, as Koriz Brisi, now I remember my bris. We're also not going to get into this morning. Probably we'll get into it this Shabbos. Sorry for those who don't live in Boca. But why does God say, why does he only invoke the bris? I remember the bris. But what precipitates and what precedes his remembering the bris? He only remembers the bris when? Once Na'akas B'nai Israel. Once the Jewish people cry out. Once they call to him. Once they daven. Why must it be precipitated or preceded by that? Why couldn't God just, out of his own kindness, remember the promise, remember the bris, remember the covenant that he had made? Why does it have to be connected to the initiation? Why must it first be introduced by the Jewish people? Again, not going to talk about, so far we've talked a lot about the things we're not going to talk about today, so let's talk about something today. And most notably, let's talk about Pasuk Vav. Now we have the introduction to what we call the Dal Lashonas of Geula, the four languages of Geula. The four languages of Geula describing the four stages of the redemption, the four stages of the redemptive process. We're familiar with it all from the Seder and from the Haggadah. These words, hopefully, should be recognizable to you. I will take you out, I will save you, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will take you, 
Elohim, I will be your God, and you will know that I am the one who took you out from under the bondage, under the servitude, under the suffering of Mitzrayim. And I will bring you to the land. We've spoken about previously, I think last year, we spoke about Rav Mendel Kasher, Menachem Mendel Kasher, and his Haggadah Shlema, Torah Shlema, talks about Vehevesi, when the Jewish people merited the um, gift, the miraculous modern gift of the modern state of Israel, he proposed to the chief rabbinate an introduction of a fifth cup. The coast of Elio should not just sit on the table that we observe it, we should drink from it. The Hevesi, the fifth language of Geula. And I mentioned last year, if you contrast his argument and his advocacy for drinking the fifth cup in his Haggadah Shlema, compared to what he writes in the introduction to his Torah Shlema and Shmos. His Torah Shlema and Shmos, he writes while he's still in Europe, and Europe is going up in flames. And he writes there, he describes what they are enduring is worse than anything the Jews in Egypt suffered. And he imagines no future for the Jewish people. And yet only a few years later, with the modern gift of the miracle of the State of Israel, he's proposing drinking the fifth cup because of the Hevesi. As you know, that was not a proposal that was accepted. And we do not drink that fifth cup, but it's fascinating. We have this fifth language of the Hevesi. So these four things, what do they correspond with? Rashi and the Rashbam, the Gemara and Psachim, the 10th parak of Psachim, which those learning the Dafyomi will conveniently get up to a month before Pesach and finish just in time for Pesach. Rashi and his grandson, the Rashbam, Shmuel ben Meir, both write there in Psachim that the four cups of wine that we drink, which were rabbinically introduced at the Seder, Matzah and Maror have a source, Dorai, so they are biblical. The four cups that we drink are rabbinic. And why do we drink the four cups? Rashi and the Rashbam both say it parallels these four languages of redemption. I'll take you out, I'll rescue you, I'll redeem you, and I'm going to take you. Now the Nitziv, Rav Natali Tzu Yehuda Berlin, points out that the Hebrew term for words often used by the rabbis is lishonos. It should have been arba lishonos of geula, four different languages of geula. But no, uh, the Nitziv, the term in this portion denotes the language of redemption rather than words of redemption. It's not, it's not arba tevos shagula. It's not four words of redemption, it's lishonos. Lashonos doesn't mean a word. A teva is a word. What does Lashonos mean? A Lashon is a language. So the Siv points out, these aren't synonyms. These aren't four synonyms for what God did for us taking us out of Egypt. They are Lashonos. They are, they're languages. They're different ways to describe. You know, when you talk about, you're not speaking my language. You're having a conversation with someone, you don't see eye to eye, you say, we're not speaking the same language. You don't speak my, I don't speak your language. What are you saying? You're both talking in English or Hebrew or Yiddish or Spanish or whatever language you're speaking in. So what do you mean you don't speak my language or we're not speaking the same language? It means we're not seeing eye to eye. We're not describing it the same way. We're not connecting. So the Tziv points out it's not for, it's not for tevos. It's not for uh, words of, of uh, letters of redemption. It's lishonos. It's languages because it's describing four distinct stages. These are not four synonyms. These are different stages, different experiences, different transitions, different transformations that took place. Redemption is gradual, it's incremental. It doesn't happen in a linear fashion. And it's not binary. It's not that one moment we were slaves and the next we were freed. It's not that it happened like this. It was something that occurred in stages and that Nitziv is very instructive for our time because it seems as much as every time we take a step forward in living in a redemptive time, it feels sometimes like we take two or three steps backwards. And so you say, well, which is it? How many elections could Israel have in, in, in a year and a half, in two years? Is this a schalta de geula? Is it a miraculous time? 
Are we living through a period of redemption, the early stages of redemption? In some ways it feels like that. And in other ways you say, what in the world is going on? How could it be another lockdown? How could it be another election? How could it be another? And the answer is that Geula doesn't happen linearly. It doesn't happen automatically. It happens incrementally and in stages, as it did when we left Mitzrayim. It's Lashonos of Geula. It's not for words, synonyms for Geula. It's for languages. It's for stages. It's for incremental transitions of Geula. Now, Mori Varabi Rav Asher Weiss, the Minchas Asher, points out on Chumash that there's a halachic anomaly when it comes to the four cups of wine, which should reveal to us an insight and our parsha on parsha's va'ira. You're allowed to drink between the first and the second cup of wine. So, first cup of wine is Kaddish, when you make Kiddush. That's the first cup of wine at the Seder. And then you have the second cup of wine before the Seuda. Third cup of wine is with Benching, and the fourth cup of wine is Geula. There's a halachic anomaly. You're allowed to drink between the first and the second cup, and you could drink between the second and third, but between the third and the fourth, you're not allowed to eat or drink anything. And the question is why? Why is this so? So there are people who think that says Rav Asher Weiss, the whole redemption, the whole Geula that we're reading about and that we're going to celebrate shortly, too soon for some, but the whole Geula, the whole redemption that we're going to celebrate is all about the physical liberation. We were in bondage. We were suffering. We were oppressed. We were persecuted and we were set free. Nobody was chasing us and nobody was torturing us. And they limit it from liberation from the yoke of an oppressor. And for such people, the first three expressions are enough. And they are Votesi, Vitsalti, Vigaalti. You took us out and you rescued us and you redeemed us. But what does the fourth one correspond with? What is the word Vilakachti a reference to? So the fourth Vilakachti is a reference to is a reference to coming to Harsinai. Vilakachti is a reference to Kabbalah Satora. Vilakachti is that you took us to Harsinai, you made us a covenantal community, you gave us the Torah, you gave us a mandate and a mission and a purpose. You didn't just liberate us to be some secular political entity, to be a nation like any other. You took us out for a reason, to be an Orla Goyim, to be an Am Kadosh, to be an Am Segula. You took us out for a reason. And that's what Chazal is telling us with this halacha, says the Menchazasha, says the Rosh Weiss, that the first three expressions are the most significant aspects of redemption, not the most significant. And that's why you could drink in between them. Because the first three, they are stages of physical liberation. But that fourth one, Vilakachti, you dare not separate it from the first three. You dare not make a hefsake. You dare not stop after three and say, look, I'm free. I'm free. We spoke last week about freedom from and freedom too. And that continues this week with the four Lashonas of Geula. Vilotesi Vitzata Vigaalti are the freedom from. We are liberated from an oppressor. Vilakachti is freedom too. Now that you're free, what are you going to do with it? What does freedom mean to you? Who do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to live? Will you embrace Torah, God's blueprint and instruction manual for how to live? So between the first three, you could drink, you could interrupt, you could have a half sake because they're all about physical freedom. But the fourth, Vilakachti, not freedom from, but freedom to, you dare not interrupt, you dare not make a hefsek, and that is why you are not allowed to. That is why, chas v'shalom, halacha says you cannot drink or eat in between. This also answers a question I asked on Friday night. Again, apologies to those who don't attend BRS, but I ask in shul every Friday night a question. I always invite people to suggest their answers. And in last week's parsha, when Moshe demurs, when he hesitates to accept the appointment of leadership, and he as if challenges God, give me a sign. How do I know the people are worthy? How do I know I'm capable? 
And Hashem says, V'zelecha ha'os. Here is the sign. And then he says something very strange. Here is the sign. Ta'avdun, once you leave Egypt, Ta'avdun, Tzolokim Baharazel, you're going to worship God on that mountain. Uh, how is that a sign? He's asking for a sign right now, in the here and now. How do I know? Well, later, when all this pans out and works out, then you'll know. What do you mean? I want a sign right now. But moreover, how is that a sign that God's in charge? When the people will worship at the mountain, that is a sign that the people have stepped up and done something. What does that reveal or reflect about the Ribbon Shalom, about Kodesh Baruch Hu? So Besalavichik explains, he says, you have to understand the context of that conversation that was taking place. Hashem wants Moshe Shlichos. He says, Eshlachacha. I'm going to send you as a Shliach to Paro, to be a Manig. So first of all, Eshlachacha, I'm sending you as a Shliach. And Hotsias Ami, you're going to take out my people. And Moshe resists. Moshe is reluctant on both. He says, first of all, who might it be a Shliach? Shliach Shaladim Kamoso. The Shliach of a person is like the person who sends them. Who am I to be a Shliach? And number two, to be a Manig for the Jewish people, Hotsias Ami, who says they're worthy? And why should they get out? And what will be with them once they're free? And to this Hashem answers both. First he says, Unlike any other type of messenger, where I send you to do my bidding, you are the messenger acting as an agent on my behalf, Hashem says, Yes, you're the shliach, but I'm going to be standing right next to you. I'm going to be by your side. You're not going on your own. Rav Shechter, Moriv Rabbi Rav Shechter, when he quotes this, as the, this is the pshat, Bo El Paro, next week's parsha. It doesn't say lech el paro, it says bo el paro, because this is an unusual shlichus. When I say to one of my kids, one of my friends, one of my congregants, I say, would you mind taking care of, could you do this for me? What I'm asking is, could you do it instead of me? For me means instead of me, on my behalf. But in Hashem's case, when he says, I'm sending you, I'll be with you. It's not in lieu of me, instead of me, in place of me. I will be with you, which is why it's Bo El Paro, not Lech El Paro. But as far as the second reason, says, says the Rav, what Hashem was telling Moshe is, you're right. If the purpose of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, if the reason that you're leaving is to be emancipated and liberated, to be a secular political entity like any other, then you're right. Then, then, then I don't know if you're the one. But Zelacha Ha'os, this leaving Mitzrayim, Zelacha Ha'oz doesn't mean I'm giving you a miracle or a sign right now that I'm genuine and real. Zelacha Ha'oz means the whole exodus is not a goal. It's an os, it's a sign. What is the goal? Ta'avdunis alokim baharazeh. The whole mission is velakachti. The whole purpose of why he took us out was to become who we are meant to be. Who we're meant to be. And so again, coming back to Rav Asher's insight, that's why you can't have a hefsek, you can't interrupt. You can interrupt the first to the second, the second to the third, but you can't interrupt between the third and the fourth cup. Because Vilakahti, who we're meant to be, can't be separated from why we're here. Being out of Egypt is why we're here. But Vilakahti is who we are meant to be. That we have to read it as not charasa echerus. We have to understand coming to our Sinai is what gave us real freedom. And you can understand it based on what we spoke about last week. It gives us the real freedom. Not just the freedom from, but it gives us the greater freedom, which is the freedom, which is the freedom to. So all of that is number one, Rav Asher and the Rav, and how we understand these psukim, this anomaly within the halacha and the interruptions at our Seder, but the understanding that everything we're reading about in Va'ira and Bo and Bishalach is all the get to Yisro. All of it. Shmoz Va'era Bo B'Shalach is just to get to Yisro. And if you read Shmoz Va'era Bo B'Shalach, but you cut out and you drop out before you get to Yisro, if you don't get to the Velakachti, then you're halfway there. Then you're only halfway there. Now, does that mean that you're nowhere? It does not mean that you're nowhere. We have two concepts of the bris, the covenant that we have with Hashem. We have what's called bris avos 
and Brisinai. My brother has several articles coming out as a book on this topic. Bris Avos and Bris Sinai. Bris Avos means that we're a family. Sefer Bracious is all about Bris Avos. It's all about the fact that we are a family. And as a family, we have allegiances and loyalty to one another, family values and a family mission statement. And even without the Bris Sinai, even without being injected with what Torah gives us, there is a value to bris avos. Bris avos is what connects us to the totality of the Jewish world, whether they are observant or not. But of course, it is not only coupled with, but maybe in some way surpassed by bris sinai. That we're not just a family bris avos, like any other, but we also have a covenant, not only the covenant of a family, even for those who do not accept bris sinai, but the covenant is informed by bris sinai. The notion that ultimately we get to Sinai and that is who we are and what we are about. All of that is number one. Number two. Number two. So what is this timeline? We have the four Lashonas, the Nitziv said Lashonas, four stages, incremental stages, it's not linear, of Geula. Well, what do they correspond with? What do they correspond with within the storyline we're about to read itself? Right? So our parsha begins with Hashem making a promise. There are four things you're going to go through. Votesi, Vitzalti, Vigaalti, Vilakachti. Great. Now that we read the story and we have to plug it in, what historical part in the narrative do these four things, in fact, refer to? That is the question. So Rabbeinu Bachya, Rabbeinu Bachaya and the Svorno, we're not going to read it inside because we have a lot we want to get to. Rabbeinu Bachya and the Svorno both lay out a similar timeline. And they say, Votesi refers to Hashem freeing us from the backbreaking labor. Votesi is that there were edicts against us it was backbreaking labor. The Paro and the Mitzrim were holding us in bondage, and Votesi is it ended. We continue to have the status, though, of slaves. And so that's what Vihitzalti means, when we were no longer under the control and dominion of Egypt. Not only did Paro rescind his decrees against us, but we also didn't even have the status of slaves. That's what Vihitzalti refers to. And that took place after the final plague of Makas Bechorus. So we were still in Egypt that night, and we still were not citizens. We didn't have a vote. We didn't have rights. We were still slaves, even though the um, the xeras against us had been rescinded, had been had been suspended. Um, and now the Jewish people were free from work and bondage, were liberated from the status of prisoners, but still risk being pursued. And that's the third stage of Vigaalti. So when did Vigaalti occur? Only after the Egyptians drowned in the Yamsuf, say the Svarna and Rabbeinu Bachya. Only after our enemies, not only were we no longer physically oppressed, not only had we been liberated from a status of being slaves, living under that status, living under that regime, under that dictatorship, but only when we saw our previous oppressor drown, then Vigaalti, then we were redeemed. And of course, the fourth and final stage, Vilakakti, which we just spoke about, which was when we came to Harsinai. So I pose to you the following question. And again, Though I don't see you scribbling notes, you should be because I'm giving a divrei Torah for your Seder table. Although if most of you have cognitive dissonance, you don't want to be thinking about the Seder table or cleaning your house for it at all. But here's a great insight. Why was Vigaalti necessary? What did Vigaalti add? If the Jewish people were no longer forced to do backbreaking labor that had been rescinded, and they no longer were considered slaves, they had been emancipated. And I understand Valakachti because that Avdus was replaced with another one. We took upon ourselves voluntarily a new master God. I got Velakachti. So if you just think about it for a moment, Veotesi and Vitsalti and Velakachti all make sense. What does Gaalti add? What does Gaalti contribute? What incremental stage in the Nitziv's vision does Vigaalti add? What did we experience in Vigaalti? In what way did that add to our sense of uh, and our status? of being freed further. 
explains very beautifully. He says, you know what that took care of? It took care of perhaps what is the most oppressive form of slavery of all. Not the physical bondage and not the status of slave and not, not being at Harsinai. You know what it was? It was the slave mentality. That's what Viga'alti got rid of. Because you see, you had taken the Jews out of Egypt, but you hadn't taken Egypt out of the Jews. You had taken the Jews out of the bondage of Egypt, but the trauma, the trauma of that bondage and its influence on the mentality of this burgeoning nation had not yet been liberated. So there's trauma. Not only does one survive an episode, and then they're saved and freed, and the episode no longer threatens them, and yet they can suffer PTSD in a very clinical diagnosed way, or even less than clinically diagnosed, but the, the trauma of having come out from an experience that is hard to shake, it's hard to drop, it's hard to move on. So explain Rav Hanach, even the fourth stage of Lakachti, even receiving the Torah from Hashem wouldn't have been enough. They would have had the Torah and following mitzvos and HaKadosh Baruch would be our new master and yet they'd be looking over their shoulder, living with fear and anxiousness and concern with this unrelenting sense of dread that maybe they're still out there. Maybe they still want to get us. Maybe all we are is, is slaves. Not only the physical fear of returning to a place of bondage, but the spiritual and the emotional insecurity that maybe it will come back, maybe I'm unworthy, maybe all I am is a slave, maybe I can't accomplish or achieve more, maybe I don't deserve to be free. There are so many layers when a person survives or comes out of an episode. And I think as this is a partial perspective for today, I think it's a powerful lesson for us that not only do people come out of experiences, but we shouldn't just assume that somebody survives, whether it's life-threatening or emotionally threatening an experience, that just because it no longer threatens them, now they're done. There also is hard work that has to happen, sometimes with support and therapy, sometimes one can do it on their own, but you need a stage of vigaalti, a stage of vigaalti. And the only way, in the case of Klal Yisrael coming out of Mitzrayim, the only way the Jewish people achieved a vigaalti was when they saw their taskmasters drowning in the sea. Only when they saw that which previously threatened and haunted them, only when they saw it obliterated. That's what therapy is. That's what support is. You're able to confront that which threatened you previously, and at least obliterate, if not literally, obliterate and destroy what the formidable threat that that idea or person or experience poses to you. So these four stages of Geula um, very much can psychologically be applied to the four stages that we need to go through when a person has gone through a difficult experience in order to be able to liberate themselves. So we got out to the third language, the third cup corresponds with being free of the, phys- of the psychological shackles, of that slave mentality, of self-imposed mentality, of the cycle of psyche, of unworthiness and inferiority and inability and security, of that which holds us back when we're always looking over our shoulder. There are so many people I know who sabotage their own success because they think they're incapable. And they end up sabotaging and undermining who they could be and what they could achieve because there's no one and nothing holding them back other than themselves. That's the Vigaalti. The third cup is critically important, the third cup of Viga'alti, to be able to confront these self-imposed things that are holding us back and be able to navigate them, be able to manage them, be able to overcome them, be able to whatever we need to do in order to Viga'alti, in order to be able to have a sense of being redeemed from them. And in fact, that's what the Torah also continues in our parsha. That's what comes right next. 
Kodesh Baruch Hu tells him, Pasuk Yud Gimel, page 320 in the Yod's Stone Chumash. Hashem speaks to Moshe and I want you to command the Jewish people, and I want you to command Paro, Lotzias B'nei Yisrael Meretz Mitzrayim. And Rashi is bothered, all the commentaries are bothered by what is the obvious question. I understand why Paro needs to be instructed, let the people go. But they don't come first. It's not Paro and the Egyptians who are receiving that instruction first. It is preceded by an instruction for whom? It's preceded by an instruction for B'nei Yisrael, Vaitzavim El B'nei Yisrael. Tell the Jewish people, oh, and tell Paro and the Mitzrim to let him out. What do you mean tell the Jewish people? You think you open the door to the jail? You got to tell the warden to open the door to the jail. What do you have to tell the prisoner? I'm commanding you to leave. The prisoner is eager. Prisoner is on the cusp. Prisoner is ready. Prisoner is desperate to flee, to run, to be liberated. So why Why do the Jewish people need to be instructed? And the answer is, it wasn't just power that needed the instruction. The people needed a tzivui. Because that passive spectator, slave mentality, that inferiority, insecurity, that inability to believe that they were capable or deserve or will have a better future was holding them back. And so, it wasn't just Paro and the Egyptians who needed to hear, let my people go. The people needed to hear, let yourselves go. And that's this third stage of Viga'alti. It's a critical, critical third stage of, of Viga'alti that uh, we are, have to redeem ourselves also from Siblos Mitzrayim, not only the people, but we too need to be able to hear that. Let's go to our first Rav Druk of the day, Eish Tamed. We've been going through in the Parshashir, the magnificent Sefer of Rav Yisrael, Meir Druk of Eretz Yisrael, the Eish Tamed. And he says the following, So the fourth cup, the fourth Lashon, the fourth language, or incremental stage, is arriving at Harsinai. And as we said, that was the purpose, that was the goal, that was the essence of it all. By the way, that's why Pesach and Shavuos have to go together. If you observe Pesach, as almost universally the Jewish people do, whether you're observant or not, but you don't observe Shavuos, then you haven't kept Pesach. That's why we have something called Svira Sa'omer that bridges them between. The Ramban writes, Svira Sa'omer is the Cholamoid of Pesach and Shavuos. What does the Ramban mean? It means that just like Yontif, has first days and last days, and Cholomoid bridges the two, so too Pesach is the first days, Shavuos is the last days, and Cholomoid is in between. So if you keep Pesach, but you don't keep Shavuos, if you celebrate leaving Egypt, you celebrate freedom from, but you don't observe Shavuos, the freedom to, then you miss the boat. Then you miss the point of what it's really all about. The two halves of the same coin, the part of one holiday. They're really two regalim, not three. You have Sukkot, and then you have Pesach Shavuos as its own regel, Svira Somer as the Cholomoid in between, getting to Lakachti, getting to Arsinai. So being a Jew doesn't mean, you know, eating gefilte fish. Being a Jew doesn't mean Jewish culture, Yiddish language. Being a Jew means Vilakachti. It's not just Bris Avos, it's Bris Sinai. You have to get to that fourth language of, of Geula, and that's why Rav Asher said, you cannot drink in between. The Ramban writes here on that Pasuk, when you arrive at Asinai and receive the Torah, because that's where it says that we are a treasure to God, an Am Segula, an Am Segula. When Hashem calls us an Am Segula, He doesn't mean a nation that wears red bendels. That's not what He means, an Am Segula. A nation who keeps schoolers doesn't mean a nation that wears red bendels and, and, and engages in all kinds of silly superstitions. What He means here, an Am Segula, means that you keep Torah and mitzvot. 
You are a model for the world, a light onto the world. So it says Rav Druk, Lashem Gula Zusha Vilakachti, Mechuvenes Klapikabasa Torah. As the Ramban says, and we've been elaborating on, this fourth language is a reference to receiving the Torah. And once we get to that fourth and final language, once there is, we close the loop on this whole story of the Jewish people, then we will know about God who took us out. And Dover Pella, Esther of Druk, he says, What? It's going to take to getting to our Sinai in order to know that there's a God? How about something called 10 plagues? How about the 10 times the people saw God suspend the rules of nature, intervene, intercede, reveal himself to the world and to Mitzrim and to Paro? That wasn't enough? Why does the Pasuk more than imply? The Pasuk explicitly states that you only come to know God when... You come to know God when you arrive at, at Har Sinai. What do you mean? They knew God before. So Amar HaGonor Bichezgel Abramski Zetzal. Rav Druk quotes the great Tam uh, Chacham, the author of the Chazan Yechezgel, Rav Yechezgel Abramski, who says, We learn from here Yisod Nora. A very powerful insight. You could be exposed to, and you can see, and you can live through, and you can observe extraordinary, extraordinary things. But if you don't have the vessel, if you don't have the language, if you don't have the glasses or the filter through which to interpret it and to appreciate it and to understand it and to be moved by it, then you can't really, you can't really absorb it. You can't really absorb it. It's not enough to see wondrous things. It's not enough to see extraordinary things. You need to have the tools, the instruments, the language. You have to have the kli, the vessel, to be able to receive and accept even that extraordinary thing that you're seeing. So the only way to interpret these 10 things that happened in Egypt, if you wanted, you could dismiss them as all aberrations, as all unusual natural possibilities that as unlikely as they are, you could write them off to coincidence, chance, randomness, it's only when we have the language, it's only when we have the principles of Torah, the only when we can put on our Torah lens and look at the world through that hashkafa, we can interpret what we're seeing. Until they stood at Harsinai and still they had a Torah, until they understood what it was all about, they couldn't appreciate they couldn't put together. The picture was incomplete. And they were incomplete from being able to interpret it and to understand it and to observe it and to act on it. Only then, And that's what he says. Rav Druk expands on this insight of the Chazin Yechezkel that we can understand the Gemara. The Gemara Nida Daf Lama tells us that a fetus in the womb of his mother has three things. Ner dalak lo arosho. There is a candle lit over his head, her head. But sofa mabit b'sofa olamat sofa. And with the light of that candle, this fetus is able to see from one side of the world to the other. Malam demoso kol Torah kula. And we know the fetus, the child in the womb, learns the totality of Torah. Vinei la'achar sheyatsa mimayimo. The Gemara says, "Kevan shabal avir olam ba'malach usat rapiv." But once the baby is born, the malach gives a little clap right on the lip. That's why we have the indent on the other upper lip, causing to forget the entire Torah. The petach chatas ravets. and he wonders. I don't understand. Near dalek arosho, he's got a candle lit. 
can see from one end of the world to the other, is learning the whole Torah. And then when he's done, we make him forget. What did we cause this baby to forget? The Torah. But we didn't cause the baby to forget the experience of having the candle lit. We didn't cause the baby to forget the experience of seeing from one end of the world to the other. So why doesn't the Gemara talk about the other two things? The fetus, our tradition tells us, has three experiences in the womb. Why did Yaakov kick to get out at a base medrash if he was learning Torah with the Malach in the womb? Because no matter how good your Rebbe is, if your Chavur says Esav, you got to get out of the yeshiva. you got to get out of the base medrash. So every fetus is learning Torah and they're caused to forget. But why do we only relate to the first, two, the first one or one of them? What about the other two? So Rav Jura quotes the Satma Rebbe, Rabbi Yolish, Satma Rav. Because the ability to sense the light and the ability to see from one end of the world to the other is only through the lens of Torah. So once the baby is caused to forget the experience of learning Torah, they don't need to be caused to forget the other two because they go with it. It's only when you have Torah as a kli through which to interpret, to appreciate, to understand, to assimilate everything we're seeing and experiencing. Torah is what gives us truth. And without the Torah then you cannot trust that what's being experienced or what's being seen is accurate, real, or authentic. So therefore, the Gemara doesn't have to say that the other two are forgotten, because with Torah, by definition and automatically, the other two are forgotten are, other, are forgotten with it. So again, the Lakachta, you see that this fourth stage is critical. There can't be a hefzik between the third cup and the fourth cup. The Lakachta, getting to Sinai, is what animates, it's what, it's what elevates the whole first three parts. We're not just born to be a secular political entity, a nation like every other. We're born to be a covenantal community, a holy nation, a nation with a purpose, a nation on a mandate, a nation on a mission. And how do we know that mission? Torah articulates and Torah empowers us for that mission. Torah enables us to be able to interpret and to understand the world around us. The Gemara Shabbos says that when a person dies, they come upstairs, they're asked all these questions by the angel. And one of them is, one of them is, Kavati Itam La Torah, which we interpret to mean, Kavati Itam La Torah means, did you set aside time for Torah study? Did you make Tuesday mornings 9.30 a priority? Do you learn the daf every day? Do you have a chavrusa? Do you go whatever shir you go to? Did you set aside time? Did you establish ongoing set aside time for Torah learning? Kavati itam la Torah. However, the Bali Musa interpret it differently. And they say the following. Kavati itam la Torah or kavata Torah li itim? Kavati itam la Torah means the itim means the times. Itim means the times. So, Times of Israel, New York Times, the times of the world. Kavati itim. When you're reading the Times, whichever Times, I hope it's not the New York Times, don't give them money. But when you're reading the Times, Kavata Itim La Torah, did you interpret what you're reading through the prism of Torah or Kavata Torah La Itim? Or do you look into the Torah and say, I'm going to manipulate and distort this Pasuk, this mitzvah, this law to conform with my culture, with the climate of my time, with the ethos and the mores of my time? That's what we're going to be asked when we come upstairs. Kavata Torah le'itim. Did we make the times conform to Torah? Or did we make Torah conform to the times? And that's what he's saying. We use Torah to be our lens to help us interpret the world. And therefore it took Kla Yisrael getting to Sinai. It took the Velakachti. And only when they got there, V'idatam keni Hashem ha'motiyas chamitach ha'sivlos mitzrayim. Ten plagues didn't do it. And a splitting sea didn't do it. It only took getting to Sinai, then and only then could they appreciate fully what it meant because they had the Torah to give them the language, to give them a context, give them a sense of appreciation. Okay, Vaita, we're going to do another piece by Rav Druk. And he says the following. Again, these uh, four languages of Geula. And Rashi says, Sivlos Mitzrayim. 
then you will know that God is the one who takes you out mitacha sivlos mitzrayim. Sivlos mitzrayim says Rashi, Torah masa mitzrayim, from the burden of the weight of Mitzrayim. Yishlodatik madu betchila kasov dal d'shom es gula shem v'tzis yitad v'gadu lekachti. At the end, it says yidatim kenei Hashem lokechem and lo kasov el l'shom gula harishona hamotzieschem. In other words, when we summarize at the end what the goal of it all was, why did we only invoke one of the four languages? Vyadatim, you'll know then. What will you know? God is what? The one who is? Hamotzi. That's Vihitzal, that's Vahotzesi. What about Vihitzal t'vigal t'vilakachti? Why do we only associate the end, the summary, the conclusion, the goal, the Vyadatim, with the first language of Geula of Hamotzi, Vahotzesi? Why not with the other three languages of Geula? So he says the following. Why, when God revealed himself to Avram, and he entered the covenant, the Brisbane Absarim with Avram, and he told him, your children are going to serve, they're going to be enslaved for how long? 400 years. Of course, it was limited. It was only 210 in the end. But 400 years. The same Avram who stood up for the evil, wicked people of stone. What does he say to God when God says, your children are going to suffer 400 years in Egypt? Anyone remember what Avram said? That's right. Avram said nothing. Why didn't he say something? Why didn't he say, God, Ribbonu Shalom, Almighty, Avarachaman, how could you do that to my children? These are my children. So for the stranger Stom, the wicked people of Stom, he advocates and he says, how could you do it? And for his own children, who God says 400 years, they're going to suffer in the hands of the Egyptians, he says nothing. How could it be? How could it be? So says Rav Druk the following. Says the following. Tzarech Levar. Why did we have to go through the Korah Barza? Why did we have to go through the fiery furnace of Mitzrayim before we could emerge a people? This is really a question for Sefer Bracious and the Brits bin Absarim. But when God made that covenant with Avram and he said, before you can go from a family to a people, before you can become a nation, you must endure, you must become hardened, you must gain the resiliency of having to survive an experience of a Mitzrayim. Why? Why? Wouldn't it have been much more lovely? Wouldn't it have been much more gentle? Wouldn't it have been much more an act of a loving father to allow us to just become a nation in prosperity? Why couldn't we become a nation in prosperity? Why did we have to become a nation in service, in slavery? And says Rav Druk, because we needed to be introduced to the concept of Avdus. You see, if the whole goal and the mission, the purpose of life is Velakachtem, is to be able to come to Sinai, is to receive the Torah and to be an Eved Hashem. To be an Eved Hashem. That's the goal, that's the purpose. Ani Avdecha. Ani Avdecha Hashem. I am your servant. That's our mission, that's our goal. That's how we measure how our spiritual well-being is. We needed to first experience what Avdus is. We needed to be introduced to the concept of, put what you want aside, you serve a master. You serve a master. There are some wonderful, amazing people I know who have done tremendous things in the community and in the world. But, you know, sometimes a person who never worked for someone a day in their life, they were an entrepreneur from a very young age, they started their own company, they had a lot of success, and they don't know, they're not familiar with the experience of saying, I think we should do it this way. But the boss says, that's lovely, that's nice, we're going to do it my way. They've never ever heard no. They've never ever had to defer or submit to someone else. They don't have the experience of surrender, of submission, of having to defer to the opinion or the conclusion of someone else. Someone who's never experienced that avdus, so to say. They've never worked for someone. They don't know what it means to be accountable and to report. They don't know what it means to hear no. They don't know what it means to have things delegated to them. They don't know what it means to not own their own time, but to have to report to someone else. 
So such a person is missing a quality in life. And here too, had the Jewish people not first gone to Egypt, they wouldn't be familiar, they wouldn't have experienced the concept of avdus, of what it means, which was a prerequisite. Before you could be an Eved Hashem, you have to know what it means to be an Eved. You have to know what it means to be an Eved, says Rav Druk. How could you say that we went to Cheres Olam, to real freedom? We just exchanged one master for another. So where do we have freedom today? And the answer is that you only have freedom if you serve Hashem. That's the only real freedom there is. So we had to be introduced. And therefore, The sivlos, the suffering, the bondage, was the experience of avdus, the experience of submission and surrender. That's what it means. What is, what is savlanut? What is savlanut? Revolba points out, the word savlanut, the word we use for patience, savlanut, a little savlanut, no, a little patience. What is savlanut? Savlanus. What is savlanut? It is the capacity to surrender, submit, to wait patiently, to not have things on your timetable, to not happen the way you want it to happen, that you have to be patient. That's why it's the same word. Did it ever occur to you? Sivlos mitzrayim. Sivlos means bondage. Sivlos means suffering. Savlanut means patience. And the answer is the patient person suffers. The patient, patient person surrenders. And that's the experience we had to have an experience of avdus before we could become an Eved Hashem, we had to first be familiar with and know what it means to be an Eved. Therefore, Yediyas Hashem Shayachas Leitziyah Mitachas Elos Mitzrayim. Kevin Shehi, Raki, Mebatas, Hakara, Mokhlatat, Borei Olam, Shechnisu Votzinu Mitzrayim. And that is the connection with this expression and with this phrase. Okay, the Torah tells us that Moshe tells Hashem, how in the world is power going to listen to me? We begin the period of the Makos. We discussed in previous years, I think last year's, we analyzed Rabbi Yehuda. We said at the Seder, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda, Nasan Laham Simanim. Wow, Rabbi Yehuda had such an einfall. Wow, what a brilliant breakthrough. He created an acronym. He broke it up into three groups. Ten plagues, three, three, and four. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. What's so brilliant what Rabbi Yehuda did? He gave an acronym. He divided by three. What's so brilliant? And the answer we spoke about last year, I defer, to last, I refer you to last year's year. The answer is, these three categories, they weren't just three groupings. They represent three pedagogic stages or lessons that the Makos were meant to teach. The Makos were not random. The Makos were not meant for Paro and the Egyptians alone. The Makos were a curriculum, an exercise in pedagogy for the Jewish people. And the three groupings that Rabbi Yehuda lumps them in reflect three lessons that we needed to learn, three lessons that Paro and the Egyptians needed to learn. So we've spoken about that before. But when Hashem says to Moshe, you're going to deliver the Makos, Moshe says, me? What are you, crazy? They'll never listen to me. Paro won't listen to me. I can't even get the Jewish people to listen to me. And why won't they listen? So the Imre Chaim says the vision of the Rebbe. What does it mean? What does it mean? So first of all, going back, Listen to this vision as a Rebbe. What an Imre Chaim. Wow. God's going to liberate us. From where? Sivlos Mitzrayim. I'm finishing off the thought that I started before. Sivlos means the suffering. Savlanut means the patience. Imre Chaim puts the two together. And the vision of the Rebbe says, you know what God's going to take you out of? You've been way, way, way too patient for the corruption of Egypt. You've been way, way, way too tolerant for the moral depravity, the moral decay, the moral corruption of Egypt. It's time to take you out. 
I'm going to get you out, mitachas, from under the savlanut for Mitzrayim. You've been way too patient, way too patient. You talk about a partial perspective for today, you know, sometimes too many of us have been, had too much savlanut. There are adversaries and enemies, there are people who are against us, and we're way too tolerant. We have way too much patience. Rabbi Soloveitchik said, I've quoted this very often, the miracle of the story of Purim, our next big holiday, Tu B'Shavat and then Purim. The miracle of Purim is an enemy swore to, defo- to, to destroy us, and the miracle is we believed him. Too often in Jewish history, no, he doesn't really mean that, and you have to understand where he's coming from, and he had a rough childhood, and it's not really fair to him, and he doesn't really mean that, and maybe we deserve that. What happened with Purim? An enemy stood up and said, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people, and we believed him. We were intolerant for the intolerable. And that's the miracle of Purim. And says the vision of Tzarebbe, the Imrachayim, that's what's going on here. Hashem says, I'm going to take you out, mitachas from under, not sivlos, but savlanut. You've been way too patient. You've explained too much. You've tolerated too much. You've tolerated moral decay, and it's infiltrated and penetrated the Jewish people. You've tolerated enemies who are hostile, and yet you explain them or even align with them. So what's real redemption? Redemption is, a miracle of redemption is when Hashem takes us out from being overly patient, from having too much tolerance for that which is intolerable. That's the connection between sivlos suffering and savlanut patient. But coming back to our quotes of Ruach and Avodah Kasha, what does it mean that the people couldn't hear? Says the vision to Rebbe, Madu'a lo shomim You know, you have Moshe Rabbeinu, he comes. And he says, here's the deal, everyone. We're out. We're going free. Great news to report. And what do they say? Ah, get out of here. We don't believe you. Nobody wants to hear you. Nobody wants your message. What happened? What happened? Says the Mrechaim, Why doesn't someone hear a tzaddik? Has a message of redemption? Has the answer and the recipe, the formula for a redemptive life? Why do we reject the tzaddik? Because the more that we indulge in the physical, and the more that we deprive ourselves and dehydrate in the spiritual, then we're not going to heed the message of the tzaddik. So you could have a righteous man or woman, you could have a righteous role model who's coming, and whether explicitly or implicitly, is bringing a message of redemption, of how we could leave a, lead a more redeemed life. And we reject it, mikotzer ruach. Kotzer ruach, the vision is interpreting to mean, kotzer ruach is, we don't have spirituality. Umeavodah kasha, and the avoda of kasha, the kasha word kasha comes from kushia. We're too busy asking our kashas. We're too busy fregana kasha. We're too busy trying to slug up the tzaddik. We're too busy with our cynicism and sarcasm, trying to undermine the message of the tzaddik, that we reject it, that we don't listen, that we're incapable of, of hearing. Now Moshe extrapolates and says, if the people don't listen to me, how in the world do you expect power to listen to me? And Rashi on those words, Eich Yishma'ini Para writes, This is one of ten a fortioris, one of the few Latin words that anyone with the Sansino Gemara knows. This is one of the ten Kavachomers. Uh, if this, then that's. That's the translation of the Latin. The ten Kalvachomers that you find in the Torah. And there's a famous, famous question asked on this Kalvachomer. There's a tremendous pircha. You can slug up this Kalvachomer. How can you slug up this Kalvachomer? Paro not listening and the people not listening. Are they the same? Why did the people not listen? The people didn't listen. Backbreaking labor. The people didn't listen. They couldn't hear. They didn't heed the message because they were being oppressed, persecuted, tortured. Who had a mindset? Who had the margin? Who had the quiet to be able to hear a message? To be able to be optimistic and hopeful? That's why the people didn't hear. But Paro won't hear either if the people did. Paro's living in the lap of luxury. 
Paro's in the palace. Paro should have no problem with the bandwidth to be able to hear such a message. So where's the Kalvachomer? It's a pircha on the Kalvachomer. Moshe says, if the people for whom the message is positive won't be able to hear me, then Kalvachomer all the more so. Paro, who the message is against him, certainly he won't be able to hear me. So everybody asks, what kind of Kalvachomer is that? The people couldn't hear you because they're, being, they're suffering. That doesn't mean that Paro won't be able to hear you. That doesn't apply to Paro. So Rav Druk quotes Rav Leo Mizrahi, who writes the following, Moshe Rabbeinu, quote, Moshe Rabbeinu, Lo Vashalom, Kishadana Kavachomer Hazem Etchila, Lo Yada Shasiba Shalashamu Ayimisibas HaKotzeruach Vavodakasha, Velachin Don Oso, Vakasav Meid, Vaomer Shasiba Shalashamu Ayisamachmas HaKotzeruach. Rav Leo Mizrahi, Mizrahi, one of the super commentaries on Rashi says, wow, what an insight. He says, we know why they didn't hear. We are aware that the reason they didn't hear is because they were out of breath. They had no vision, backbreaking labor. Moshe didn't know that. So what did Moshe think was the reason they didn't hear? Moshe thought the reason was Aral Svasayim. Moshe said, look, who am I? I have no oratory skill. I'm not charismatic. I'm not compelling. I can't sell this. I can't sell this. I can't even sell freedom to slaves. You want me to sell it to Paro? I'm a horrible spokesperson. I'm the worst spokesperson that ever lived. I can't even sell it to this people. And then the Torah gives the pircha. No, the people couldn't hear because kotzeruch avodakasha. And there's a very, very powerful lesson that says Rav Druk from here. We learn about the humility of Moshe. That when Moshe sees that they can't hear him, he doesn't assume it's a problem in them. What does he assume to begin with? It's a problem in him. He says they're not hearing the message, not because you're not listening to me, but because maybe I'm not saying it well. You see that when Moshe encounters the people and the people aren't listening, he doesn't say, oh, it's a problem in them. He says, it's a problem in me. Often we're trying to persuade someone else. There are no shortage of issues, topics. Today, people are trying to persuade one another. So what happens? We assume when the other person is not persuaded, when the other person doesn't buy what we're saying, we assume it's a problem in them. You're not listening. You're not understanding. If only you'd listen, then certainly you'd be persuaded by what I'm saying. Maybe we should hold up a mirror. Maybe we're not saying it well. Maybe what we're saying is wrong. Maybe it's not compelling. Maybe we need to do the one, the one who should be doing a little bit more listening. When Moshe encounters them and they don't hear, he doesn't say it's a problem in them. He assumes it's a problem in him, and that's why that Kavachomer made sense. Within his mind and within his instinct, within his intuition, his assumption that it's a problem in me, well, if they can't hear me because that's what a horrible spokesperson I am, that's what a terrible salesman I am, then there's no chance the power is going to hear me either, and therefore the Kavachomer doesn't have a pircha within Moshe's mind because of the assumption he was working off of. Only after do we realize it's Kotzer Ruch and Avodah Kasha. They have no Ruchnias, and they're too busy schlogging up Kashas. They're too busy asking questions. Or the Orachayim. I love this Orachayim. I say it every year, and I'm not going to stop saying it. I'm not going to apologize for saying it. The Orachayim says Kotzer Ruch doesn't mean out of breath. Rashi says shortness of breath. If you're carrying a load of bricks upstairs, you're building a pyramid, you're going to run out of breath. Some people, when you get up off the chair, when you're done with the shear, you're going to be out of breath. Certainly, if you're doing backbreaking labor, you're going to be out of breath. That's how Rashi understands Kotzeruach. The Archaim says, that's not Kotzeruach. You know what Kotzeruach is? I encounter people all the time. I counsel people all the time who are stuck. They're in a dark place. 
and they've given up on themselves and they've given up on their ability to have a brighter future. They say, I'm done. I'll never get married. I'm never having a child. I'm never finding happiness. I'm never breaking through and having prosperity. I'm done. They stop believing. Kotzeh ruach. Ruach means like, we've got ruach. Yes, we do. We've got ruach. How about you? Do you have a happiness and a joy for life? A simchas achayim? Do you have an optimism and a hope and a faith? Yeish is awesome and a Torah. You're not allowed to give up. You can't have yeish. Yeish is shalomi das. You're not in your right mind if you're hopeless in despair. Because a Jew always has to believe. Kotzeh ruach. Your ruach, your sense of joy, your simchas achayim, the ruach that you have, the vision, the ability to believe, to believe in yourself, to believe in what you're capable of, you can never ever shortchange. You can never give up. You can never become hopeless. Okay. The next significant topic in our parsha, again, we've spoken about this, who hasn't countless times, is the hardening of Paro's heart. But I want to share a little bit of a different perspective and one for today on this topic. Perak Zion Pasuk Gimel. Moving along. We have an introduction, the genealogy. If Moshe and I are going to step up, are going to step up and be the spokespeople, then we are reminded of excuse me, their genealogy and their background, including the mothers, the wives, who brought them to be. And then again, Moshe, he's still trying to convince God. Come on, let me off. And he just, but just God won't buy it. He just won't let it go. So, Perek Zayin, Pasuk, Gimel. Hashem says, relax, don't worry. It's not about your ability to sell it. I'm going to harden Paro's heart. There's nothing that you could do. He's not letting the people go, and that's by design. I'm hardening his heart. We all know. We all know the story. We all know this first, uh, this first plague, the plague of, of blood. In fact, I'll tell you a crazy story for one brief moment that happened last year around this time. What happened? Last year, the Russian River, which runs through the Sonoma County in Northern California, turned red. Last year, Parsha's Vaira, that very same Parsha. Why? What happened? Were the people of California struck by a plague? I will not weigh into politics and answer that. But what happened was a blending tank from a local California vineyard sprung a leak and dumped 97,000 gallons of red wine onto the ground, and it ran into a nearby river. And to get a sense, that's enough wine to fill half a million bottles. That's how much wine. Half a million bottles of wine ran into the river, and it turned the river red making the fish swimming in the river, delicious herring in wine sauce. Anyway, so in our parsha, so I just read to you one pasuk, Perek Zayin, Pasuk Gimel, Hashem says, Akshe, I'll make it hard. Later, Perek Ches, Pasuk Yedalef, there was relief, but what happened? His heart became hardened, and he didn't hear. And then in Perek Tes, Pasuk Zayin, a next plague, when Paro inquired, he found out, that not a head of the livestock had died, the Jewish people's animals had lived, Paro Paro remained stubborn. He wouldn't let the people go. Paro's reaction to the plagues is simply mind-boggling. No rational, normal person could read what's going on and think it makes sense. How is it possible? How could a leader, how could a leader who is receiving personal disastrous results continue down the same path that's bringing about those results? How could they be so blind? How could they not see how they're sabotaging their own success, their own well-being? How do they not see that their strategy, their actions are counterproductive? They're going against their own best interests. How could it be that Paro could endure each of these plagues and remain so stubborn? It's almost impossible to believe. Almost. He suffers a week of water turning to blood, another week of frogs invading every space, including his palace, his home, his bedroom, his personal space. Third week, 
struck terrible lice, and each time that the affliction, the maka, is lifted, each time he hardens his part, heart and he digs deep and he becomes stubborn and he remains steadfast and he resists the message and he continues along the same path. He continues to be the same demagogue. He continues to be the same dictator. He continues to act in the same way and preach the same things, bringing about horrific results. How could it be? What did he get in return? What he got in return now is the next plague, which is ferocious animals wreaking havoc and then a week of livestock dying and rotting carcasses filling his country. And how does he react? The putrid smell of rotting carcasses filling his country. What a catastrophe. And the Torah tells us, you know what he did? He hardened his heart again. He doubled down again. He remained stubborn again. How is it possible that a person could be so obstinate even after getting so much pain? So there's a tremendous insight of Revolba on the Parsha. In the Shiyuri Chumash on the Parsha, Parsha's Ba'ira, he says, you know, we look at the story and we say, what a moron, what a fool. What a wicked person. Why would he sabotage himself by being so stubborn, by being so unfeeling, so callous, so obtuse to the message and to the response that he's getting from his own actions? But says Ravoba, if we're honest with ourselves, then we should admit that there's a little paro in each of us. Because there are messages and phenomena, there are events and experiences. God is talking to each of us, trying to tug on our heartstrings every day to wake us up and to inspire us and to move us and to motivate us to change and to grow. And what do we do? We harden our hearts, we double down, we dig in our heels, and we relentlessly cling to the ideas and the behaviors and the attitudes that are self-destructive and that deprive us of our own happiness and success. Paro was willing to put up with the stench of decaying beasts. He was prepared to endure pain and suffering rather than admit he was wrong. And is it not true that we are also, says Revolba? There's a little Paro in all of us. There are reactions and responses There are messages all around being broadcast to us and we ignore them. We reject them and we don't allow them to penetrate our heart or to inform or inspire us, but we remain steadfast and obstinate and stubborn in what we believe and what we're doing because we don't want to change. There are people who have a heart attack. There are people whose lungs are filled with blood. They keep smoking and they keep eating the way they were. There are people whose marriages are falling apart because they're a tyrant in their home, but they don't hear the message. And there are countless other examples. The distance between the head and the heart is the farthest distance between any two objects on earth. And these parshas says Revolba, you could read it as an outsider, critical of Paro, and say, how could it be? I don't understand it. Or you could read it and say there's a little Paro in every one of us. That we too, too often, we too, too often neglect the messages being broadcast at us and continue and remain steadfast and hold on to the things that are actually depriving us of the happiness and success we claim we want. You know, the biblical word, the Torah word for intimacy, for a connection that transcends words, a description is das. das. Intimacy is das. Paro read about God. He took philosophy and he read about and he studied and he entered the arguments of the existence of God. But when Moshe first comes to him, what does Paro say in our parsha? Lo yadati es Hashem. I don't know this God. I'm sorry, who are you here on behalf of? I'm sorry, who do you represent? I'm sorry, who's going to do what? Lo yadati es Hashem. I don't understand, but Paro studied philosophy. What do you mean, lo yadati es Hashem? And the answer is, da'as, dea, is not a knowledge that's in the head. Das is the knowledge that filters down to the heart. What Paro was saying, I don't know, I've never experienced that God. I don't have a relationship. I've never heard him talking to me. I've never spoken to him. I have no sense of intimacy with him. He doesn't have a place in my heart. Lo yadati es Hashem. I don't know that God. So Hashem says, okay, I want you to get to know me. 
We're going to take it from the philosophical, the conceptual, the abstract, and now we're going to make it experiential. And that's what the Makos, these plagues, are all about. Experiencing God firsthand. You want to know me? You know what Hashem says? I'm going to bring these ten plagues, and the Egyptians will know that I'm God. Not a coincidence, those go together. Paro says, I don't have a day. I have no intimate connection. Who is this God? He says, I'm going to come into your bedroom, into your barn. I'm going to come across the country. I'm going to come into your stock market called the Nile River. You will know me personally, and you will know me firsthand. And what does Paro do? He doubles down. Even after he's capable of having that knowledge, he makes it remain in the head, and he doesn't allow it to come down to the heart. And that's why the language that's used says Revolba over and over again is, he hardened his heart. It means in his head he saw and understood what was happening, but he hardened his heart. Not Hashem. Paro hardened his heart. Paro prevented the message from filtering down, from coming down, from becoming real. From becoming real. V'yadat Hashem, what do we say in our davening? In Aleinu we are minded. V'yadat Hayom v'hashevosa elavavecha. We have to know it up here, conceptually, analytically, philosophically, but where do we have to place it? V'hashevosa elavavecha. For it to really change us. For it to move us, it has to be something which is in the heart. And that's what we say, men who put on tefillin this morning said this when we wound the tefillin around our finger. How do you get to the point of Yadas Hashem? First, you have to have emuna. You have to bind yourself with emuna. You have to, you have to fall in love. You have to marry God with faith with Amuna, and then via Das, and then we'll truly be able to know Hashem. So the Makas are a curriculum for Paro, who says, Lo yadati. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that God. To get to the place of being, oh, you don't know God? Here he is. Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev tells a story along these same lines. Rav Levi Yitzchak, first time he, Rav Levi Yitzchak traveled to go see the Tzaddik, the Rebbe of Shmelka of Nicholsburg, and uh, he went to his home. So he asked, and, and then he went home. So they asked him, what did you learn in the home of, 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 uh, of the Rebbe of Shmelka? So he said, I learned that there's a Borei Olam. I learned that there's a creator of the world. So that's, you traveled and you came home and that's what you learned? That's what you took away, that there's a Borei Olam? So what did you learn from that? So his father-in-law said, that's what you learned? So he calls his housekeeper, come here. And he says to the housekeeper, he says to the maid, to the servant, he says, tell me, does God exist? And the housekeeper says, sure, yeah, absolutely, God exists. So his father says to him, for that you traveled to the Rebbe of Shmelka to learn that there's a God? The housekeeper, the maid knows that. That you needed to travel to the Rebbe? So he answers Rebbe Yitzchak and he says, she said there's a God. I know God. There's a world of difference between what we say and what we know, what we intimately know, what we experience, what becomes part of us. And that was what this parsha is really all about, is placing that. I had a hundred more things I wanted to share with you. Very important message at the end of the parasha of Asamti Pedus Ben Amiu Ben Amecha that Hashem put a distinction, a difference. Kodesh Baruch Hu explains again, really coming full circle. Ay, Hashem says, Paraches Pasuk Yutes. I know that we're over time, I'm ending. He says, Paraches Pasuk Yutes, towards the end of the parasha of Asamti Pedus Ben Amiu Ben Amecha, Lamachar Yah Usazeh. Hashem says, I, uh, I'm putting a distinction between. I'll make a distinction between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign will come about. Moshe is communicating. So that notion of Havdalah, the Rav here talks about Havdalah, Ben Yisrael Amim. Again, Vilakachti. 
that we didn't come out just to be some secular political entity. We didn't come out to assimilate and integrate and intermarry. We came out for Levilakarti, not just freedom from, but a sense of a freedom to where were we going? And the Havdalah of Visamti Pedus, the um, Rav Druk, we don't have time for this. I'm ending, I promise. Rav Druk says, you know what the difference is? You know what the difference is? Ben Ami u Ben Amecha? Lemachar. That's the difference. Amecha, your nation, you Egyptians, you hedonistic pleasure seekers, you live for now. We live for Lemachar tomorrow. The Jews sacrifices today for tomorrow. We live for our continuity and we live for our future and we live for tomorrow. You live for right now. You live for carpe diem. You live for indulging pleasures right now. But we live for everything we do is to get to a place of lamachar. That's the pedus ben amio ben amecha. The difference between me and you is lamachar, is how aware we are and how informed we are by the sense of wanting to get to tomorrow. All right, speaking of tomorrow, there is a tomorrow. And we have a lot more to do in the Parsha Mitzvah Shem. We'll get to it. Thank you for joining us. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel, even if you're not. Please remember, Parsha Shir next week. You can't watch on Zoom. You can only watch on YouTube and on Facebook. I hope to see you then. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.